Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 89 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is South African author and filmmaker Lauren Bukas. Her novels include Zoo City and Moxie Land, and she also wrote a story arc for the graphic novel series Fairest, a spinoff of Bill Willingham's Fables. Her latest novel, The Shining Girls, about a time-traveling serial killer, has been optioned for TV by Leonardo DiCaprio's production company Appian Way. Then stick around after the interview as guest geek Ross Lockhart joins us for a panel on Psycho Killers. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Lauren Bukas. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. All right, so your new book is called The Shining Girls. So what's that about? Well, it's about a time-traveling serial killer who is absolutely impossible to stop until one of his victims survives and turns the hunt around. Um, It's set in Chicago between 1931 and 1993, and I specifically cut it off in 1993 so I could avoid the internet (laughs) and Reddit and CCTV cameras and Google Earth and everything else, which would basically, you know, wrap up the case in two days. But the, uh, there's a violent drifter in 1931, Harper Curtis, who stumbles upon a house that opens onto other times. And what's really interesting about the house is that upstairs there is a wall in the bedroom, which is covered with these strange artifacts and um, girls' names that have been carved into the wall and, and written over and over and over again in his handwriting. And he knows that these are the shining girls and that he's going to have to go through time to find them and kill them. And he does this and is completely untraceable. His MO is all over the place. He's more violent in 1993 and less violent in 1984, which makes it impossible for any detective to try and put that together. Until Kirby survives the attack in 1989 and her life derails and she becomes completely obsessed with finding the man who did this to her and stopping him. Yeah, and you said that you got the idea from Twitter I got the idea on Twitter. I was messing around, as you do when you're supposed to be writing. And um, I, I threw it out in the middle of conversation. I, you know, it was banter with a random stranger that I should write a book about a time-traveling serial killer. And I was like, well, no, wait, wait, I really should. That would be amazing. I could do something really fun with that. Um, I didn't want to do a Bill and Ted's excellent killing spree through time. You know, killing Shakespeare, killing Hitler, killing, you know, Prince Charles. I wanted to do something a bit more serious, I guess. Because I like using fantastical elements in fiction to look at social issues. And I was very interested in the 20th century and and specifically how much has changed in the 20th century, in particular for women. So I immediately knew that I could not set the book in South Africa. Just because the story of South Africa in the 20th century is the story of apartheid. And that would overshadow everything else that I wanted to talk about. And I kind of feel that I'm off the hook anyway because um, both Marxiland and Zoo City are which are my previous novels, are kind of allegorical apartheids anyway. So I felt like, you know, I could get away with writing something different. And, um, yeah, I I started writing it on the plane. I I quickly deleted the tweet because I didn't want anyone else to come across the idea. I think it's it's bad form to, like, put your best ideas out there in the world. And I started writing it on the plane, and the story just came through very, very strongly. It starts with a man limping across the grass to a little girl in 1974. And he gives her an impossible present, which is a My Little Pony from 1982. And he tells her that he'll come back to get it. And he does, several years later, and tries to kill her. 
And so time travel, obviously, is a favorite theme of science fiction writers and science fiction fans. So just what are some of the main things that you have to keep in mind when you're writing a time travel story? I think it's really important to have a time travel story that makes sense. You know, it's fine to have loops and paradoxes. It's time travel. You know, that's part of the nature of the beast. But I wanted to play with, I guess, Greek tragedy time travel, you know, where your destiny is laid in stone. Everything you try to do to resist it just kind of puts in motion everything that will bring it about. So very kind of Oedipus or um, Macbeth. But it's also kind of Sisyphus or Prometheus, you know, that kind of stuck in a loop where you come back and are forced to repeat the same actions again and again and again. And it was, it was really fun to play with that. I, I had to map it all out very, very carefully. You know, because Harper's MO is all over the place, he's jumping through time, killing women out of time. And I have a murder wall above my desk, which tracks all the different timelines. There's Harper's killing timeline. There's the actual historical timeline of the murders. And then there's the novel's timeline, which jumps between the different young women's perspectives, Kirby, the survivor's perspective, Harper's perspective, Kirby's sidekick, Dan. And crisscrossing all of this are these red threads tracking the murders, uh, black threads to track the objects that he leaves behind on the girls, yellow threads to track the objects that he um, takes from the girls, and all the reference pictures that I took on my research trip to Chicago. But it was very, very important to me that everything did make sense, that there wasn't kind of throwaway explanations, that if you concentrate and, and, and track it out, everything will hold together. Mm. And if people want to see the picture of uh, Lauren in front of her murder wall, that'll be the picture on our blog post. So you can go check that out. But it really does make it look like you're a serial killer. Did you ever worry that people would come over to your house and just think maybe you were a serial killer? Well, you know, a lot of people have asked my husband what it's like to be in bed with me at night because <laughs> me a bit worried. <laughs> and he says, well, I think she gets most of it out on the page. So he, he's okay. But yeah, it looks like I'm a crazy person. I look completely nuts. Um, I, I'm either clearly a serial killer or some kind of wannabe homeland, the wire detective, which is probably true. I actually would love to be a detective in the wire. If I could step into any universe, it would be pattern recognition, Narnia or the wire. Well, so, I mean, what was it about the idea of a serial killer that made you want to base a book around it? I don't have a particular interest in serial killers. I'm not a, a fundy. I'm not a junkie. I have enjoyed serial killer movies like Zodiac or, um, Science of the Lambs, obviously, seven. And I think when you do it cleverly, it's very interesting. But I think often serial killers are represented in popular culture as these sexy, glamorous, sophisticated apex predators who are sipping Chianti while diabolically planning out attacks, messing with the detectives' minds, and actually doing a lot of research into real serial killers and true crime, which was absolutely the most devastating part of writing the book, just having to actually delve into these people's heads. There's not a lot going in, on in there. They generally don't have a lot of empathy, obviously, but they also don't have a lot of insight into why they're doing what they're doing. And a lot of them have major issues with impotence in the world, whether that's actual sexual dysfunction or fe feelings of powerlessness. And they're actually just violent losers. And that's not as interesting as Hannibal, but I thought I could make it interesting through this book to, to actually portray a serial killer as they often truly are. And to make it much more about the victims, to focus on the shining girls. And I think coming from South Africa, which has a terrible femicide rate, and having seen a family very close to me suffer terribly through the murder of their 23-year-old daughter, and the way the police bungled the case, you know, if there's a murder reported in the news, it's, there was real horror and there was real violence there. 
Well, I mean, maybe could you say a bit more about this this real life case you were involved in? How did you get involved in that, and and why did things go so wrong with the investigation and the aftermath? I have a cleaning lady who comes to my house once a week, and her twenty three year old daughter, who I'd known since she was fourteen or fifteen, was murdered by her boyfriend. So her name was Tomokazi Zazoyokwe, and her boyfriend, who'd been abusive and had beaten her up in the past locked her in the shack, he stabbed her, he poured boiling water over her head, and then he walked away. And five days later, the neighbors, responding to the moaning, got the police to come in and break down the door. And it, you know, it was, it was horrific, as you can imagine. And she was rushed to hospital, and she had third-degree burns, they'd become infected, there were flies thick on her skin, she was in absolute agony. And she was in and out of hospital over the next four months. And the family didn't know that they had recourse. They didn't know what their rights were. They were poor and black. And I tried to help them as much as I could. We went, I took them to the Women's Legal Center and tried to get them legal counsel. I tried to get the records from the hospitals. But it's, it's like China Mievel's The City in the City. We live in parallel universes. If you're middle class or above, you have more rights and you have more recourse to justice and to medicine and to everything. And it was devastating to see that, but it was especially devastating when I went with Tomokazi's sister to the court case. And we saw the guy there with his new 19-year-old girlfriend outside because you're on the bench with the same people that you're actually going to be testifying against. And the prosecutor called us into the office and he told us that he couldn't prosecute the case because he showed us the one piece of paper that was the police record. And he was like, this is the worst bit of investigating I've ever seen. They, the only person they bothered to interview is the victim, and she's dead. So this guy can stand up in court, and he can say absolutely anything he wants, and he will get away with it, and I will have to believe him, because I have no evidence to the contrary. And he's like, I'm going to throw it out of court now, but you can reopen the case, you can go back to the police, you can appeal to the justice minister, and maybe the newspaper, see what you can do. And I, I just burst into tears in the middle of his office. And I'm not really one who's prone to that kind of thing, but I was so angry. I was so angry that this guy was going to get away with this and that there wasn't justice and that the system didn't work. And you're raised on all these fairy tales of, of American TV shows where it does work. And Matlock and Murder, She Wrote and, you know, NYPD Blue and, and all of that stuff. And it just, it wasn't real. So I managed to get the case reopened. I got into all the major newspapers because I'm middle class and I have a voice and I know how to use it and I have friends who are journalists. And it was widely covered and the family phoned me a week later and this was now four months after she died. And they said to me, we can't face going through it again. We want you to let it go. And it was very, very hard for me to let it go. But it wasn't my decision to make and it wasn't my fight to have, so I did. Um, and I guess this novel is in part a way of exercising that but also just generally the terrible violence against women and men that we see in society. I think another classic example is what's recently happened in South Africa with our uh, Paralympian athlete, Oscar Pistorius, who murdered his girlfriend, Rhea Vestienkamp. And all the publicity and press has been about him. And she's nothing but a pretty corpse. And I wanted to write a book which was about real women and not about pretty corpses. Mm. Well, I mean, could you talk about how you did that? Because, I mean, this is a book that it pays much more attention to the victims than crime books typically do. 
Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to, you know, serial killers often have a type, although I believe there's now research which says that that's not true. But, you know, I mean, there are always contradictory studies at any time. You know, today caffeine's good for you and tomorrow it's bad for you. Um, I'm going to hold with caffeine being good for you. So serial killers generally have a type. Ted Bundy was into a young woman with brown hair and a middle parting, for example. And I thought, okay, what if Harper, Harper's type was actually not physical, but something within the girls, some burning potential, some fire inside them? What if he was like a twisted Prometheus where he is going to try and steal their fire to try and fill the hollowness inside himself? And they're all, you know, there's a range of different characters from uh, an, a young architect in the 1950s who's accused of being a dirty commie uh, to a burlesque dancer with a terrible secret to an activist working in the 1970s providing backstreet abortions um, safely and humanely to women in desperate need. Uh, through to a young woman who dances in radium paint, which is actually based on a real young woman I discovered in my research, uh, who was in hospital for radiation burns because you really should not dance in radium paint. Um, an artist and a cross curvy who really only starts to shine after she's been attacked. And it was really important to me to be able to explore their lives in detail. There's also, there's also an African American welder. Um, and they're all kicking back against their context in some time. They're all extraordinary in, I guess, normal ways. You know, it's not like any of them are going to grow up to be the next president of the United States or that the econo economic student, for example, is going to stop the 2008 crash if only she'd lived. But they're all going to make some kind of contribution. They're curious and engaged and smart and full of fire. So most of the chapter is actually about their lives and who they are and their, their ambitions and hopes and fears and, and where they're going. And right at the end, Harper comes for them. And it's written from their perspectives. The attack is not written from Harper's perspective, where you're kind of on his shoulder, accompanying him along for the ride, getting off on the same kind of twisted sick thrills that he is. You're with the victim, and she is afraid, and she is angry and outraged, and you know, hopeless and can't believe that this is happening to her. So it's much more about the emotion of that moment. And I think that's a lot of people have reacted very strongly to the violence in the book. And I think I think it's because I've made it emotional, uh, or I'd like to think that, um, and that it's not gratuitous. I, I specifically have tried to avoid writing torture porn, and actually my editor is um, one of the leading experts in violence against women in South Africa. So if she said a scene was okay and passed muster, I felt like it was probably okay. Well, yeah, I mean, could you talk a little bit about your research me method? How did you research these characters and their time periods? The research was really fun on this book. Um, I was working with two young researchers, Adam Maxwell in Denver, Colorado, and Zara Trafford in South Africa. And mainly they were dealing with the nitty gritty stuff. So I would ask Adam, for example, for details on a 1931 hospital. Because the way I deal with my serial killer, he's just the most awful human being. And the only way I could deal with writing him was to just fuck him up at every opportunity. So I rip his tendon, I break his jaw, I get him bitten by a dog, I get him stung by a bee. You know, it's, it's the little victories which count. But that meant I had to keep track of all his injuries. But I also had to know how you would treat those injuries in the 1930s because he always returns to 1931, which is his home base. So I asked Adam, Adam Maxwell, my researcher, to look into the nitty-gritty details, like what does a 1931 hospital look like? How much would they charge? How would they fix a ripped tendon? What would the doctors wear? You know, how is the Great Depression affecting hospital wards at that time? You know, all that kind of stuff. And he sent me back a whole ton of information with links to everything from, you know, oral history reports about hospitals at that time 
to photographs of what doctors were wearing through to links to eBay if I wanted to buy creepy medical equipment from the 1930s, which I really, really don't. But anyway, it was, it was fun to have that. And then he sent me this article that he found from 1936 from the Milwaukee Sentinel about a young woman who was dancing to her death in radium paint. And it was about this burlesque dancer who danced in radioactive paint and what this was doing to her. And, and the article was just so amazing. And it was full of this really rich, descriptive language. And she speaks in this crazy French accent. She says, um, oh, tell the boys, they should not be frightened of me. They should be frightened of the radiation. But it is that which is poisonous. I should probably never do a French accent. <laughs> um, but I also went back to Chicago. Uh, I'd lived in Chicago in 2000, 2001. And... I went back on a research trip and I interviewed a police detective to find out what access to the case Kirby would have had. Uh, we went through boxes of old evidence files, which was just completely crazy, and I took lots of photographs. I interviewed an old Chicago Sun-Times journalist. I interviewed you know, mu musicians from the 90s who were very involved in the punk scenes. I interviewed the head of the Zine Museum. Uh, because Kirby starts writing for the zines, which were obviously a big part of the 90s punk scene as well. A Chicago historian who fact-checked everything for me and triple-checked it. He was amazing. And I went on location scouts. I went to Montrose Beach, which is where Kirby's attack happens, and I kind of choreographed it. Yeah, I snuck around through the back corridors of the Congress Hotel with a ghost hunter and, you know, really just got a feel for the city and the different time periods. And I think this comes from having been a journalist. You know, you find that the real amazing details are actually in the real world. And if you can hang your fantastic fiction on those real details, it makes it more credible. It makes it more believable. Mm -hmm. One thing I heard you say that I thought was funny was you said that when Adam, you were interviewing people to be your research assistants and Adam said something like he named his company after one of your books or something and that helped him get yeah, the job. Yeah, totally. This, again, Twitter is amazing. I advertised for the position of research assistant on Twitter and both of my researchers came from there. And Adam approached me, his um, Twitter name is at Snipe Hunter, and he'd actually named his company Skyward Star. It's a game development company. And Skyward Star is a character in Moxieland. And it was amazing to have someone who knew me and knew my work working with me and, and knowing what I was interested in. And that's exactly why he kicked up that article on the Radium Girl for me. He had some understanding of like how my mind works and what I would find interesting. So that was incredibly valuable. I mean, I also asked Twitter for all kinds of things about... Yeah, I was trying to, I, I got one thing wrong, which luckily one of my editors caught. I'm sure people are going to find other mistakes, but I'm pretty sure, I'm 99% sure we got most of them covered. But there's one timeline mistake where uh, Zora, the African-American welder, is a little bit too young in one scene, and I had to age her up. And in the original scene, she was playing with a truck. And when I aged her up, she was making paper planes for her little brother. And I was like, wait, I was like, wait, did they even have paper planes in 1932? And I, I Googled and I spent, you know, I went through about five pages of search results and I couldn't find anything. So I asked Twitter and within five minutes, somebody had responded with a Daily Mail article about paper dots recovered from the eaves of a chapel in 1899, um, or which dated back to 1899. So it was really, you know, the hive mind is phenomenal. Hmm. So is, is the protagonist Kirby, is that named after Jack Kirby or Kirby the video game <laughs> character or anything like that? Well, obviously, I think the, there are those pop culture resonances. Um, and, you know, building research and building a convincing time period absolutely uh, relies on getting the pop culture right. You know, the, the advertising and the music and, and the movies and everything that was happening at that time. But no, Kirby's name was actually inspired by a real-life Kirby I met who happens to be at the best Kirby on Twitter. <laughs> and um, 
Uh, I met her years ago. She was the sister, well, she is the sister of, of somebody who interned for me. And she, I was like, that's it. I'm stealing your sister's name. I, I hope you realize that hmm. I'm totally using her name. I'm saving that for the right character. And when she comes along, that's it. I heard you say that uh, part of your research involved listening to podcasts. I was just wondering which podcasts are the best for your purposes. Oh, I can't remember the name of the true crime podcast I was listening to. I'd have to look it up. Um, yeah. I'll probably do that. Hang on. Here we go. True murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and authors that have written about them. And actually, that was found for me by my South African cover designer, Joey Hi-Fi. He does have a major interest in serial killers. And because he's a designer, he listens to a lot of podcasts while he's working. I can't do that because I have to, I can't compete with the words in my head. But he found a lot of really, really great stuff for me. And I also, I heard you say that serial killers are, are fond of puns. Yes. You know, I was hanging out with Ed Brubaker in Los Angeles. He's the most amazing. I think he's definitely one of my favorite comics writers. And his series Criminal is just in impeccable. It's the most beautiful storytelling. It's the first time I've ever actually stopped after I've read something and had to Google the hell out of someone to find out just who this guy is. Who could this person be who could write this story? And we made friends on Twitter. I sent him a copy of my book. Again, Twitter. And um, we hooked up in L.A. And I went out for dinner with him and his wife and another friend of theirs. And he was they were driving me home and he was telling me that a profiler friend of his had told him that serial killers apparently are really into puns. And it's kind of one of the senses of humor that they try to, that they can kind of understand and that they use to show that they do have empathy and a sense of humor. So if you like puns, you might have some latent tendencies. Hmm. I actually don't. Actually, puns kind of make me want to kill people, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That too. <laughs> um, well, I thought it was interesting that, I mean, obviously you do so much research and, and you uh, read all this true crime and so on, but you also said that you don't watch the news. It's just kind of an interesting paradox almost. It is. I, you know, I think I find the news often very depressing and often very local. And, you know, it's really irritating that CNN, like my novel, loops back <laughs> on itself in, within 15 minutes. You know, at least my novel gets like 400 pages. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's, it's just crazy. And, and there's so much of the world that we're missing out on. And I find Twitter is a much more interesting and diverse way of actually connecting with the world. Um, and then I can follow up on the stories that I'm interested in. Of course, the problem is that you're creating an echo chamber, which is only feeding you the news that you want to hear. But I think I have fairly broad tastes and I have, I follow some really interesting curators, um, who, who do tweet a lot of interesting stuff about the world. So I feel like I do have a better sense of the world from Twitter than I would if I was actually watching the news. Um, I mean, so you just got back from your book tour for this book. Uh, could you just talk about what sort of reactions are you getting to the book from, from readers and uh, just, you know, people you talk to? It's been amazing. You know, I had uh, Gillian Flynn who wrote Gone Girl. And of course, the book keeps getting compared to Gone Girl. But she actually wrote a review in O Magazine that she really enjoyed it and that she actually knew me from my comics work, which just blew my <laughs> mind. You know, I mean, obviously, I have other writer friends who've, who've really liked it. Uh, William Gibson lo loved it and Richard Cadry. A ton of friends who I've never met had a really good uh, response to it. She said it scared the bejesus out of her, which was really gratifying. It's good to scare the bejesus out of a ton of friends. Hmm. But just people's reactions have been generally very positive. There have been some people who find the violence very hectic um, and some people who accuse me of it being gratuitous, which is the one criticism which really cuts me deep, as it were. Um, because I really tried very hard not to make it so. The other interesting thing was I actually had a young woman 
wait until the very end at my New York signing to come up and talk to me. And she didn't say so outright, but she implied that something bad had happened to her and that she she said she expected the book to affect her, but she hadn't expected it to cut so deep. And she said, thank you. And I think out of all the responses I've had, that meant the most to me, that I am actually speaking somehow to the survivor's experience in a meaningful way that, that resonates with them. Have you ever had any uh, funny experiences on, on this past tour or any of your previous book tours? Um, I had the one guy who came up to me at a con and said, uh, your hair is looking much better today. I was like, thanks, random stranger. <laughs> That's great. Um, I don't know. Not in particular. You know, I've met, I've met really amazing people and uh, demanded that people take me out for drinks. And yeah, I mean, I, I, was, uh, I ended up going back to the hotel in Houston. And I went back onto Twitter and found one of the women I'd met at the reading. And I tweeted at her and I was like, are you still in the area? Please come pick me up and take me for a drink. I'm bored and lonely. <laughs> and she did. And it was amazing. Um, so again, power of Twitter. It's phenomenal. Hmm. All right. And so it was just recently announced that there's going to be a TV adaptation of The Shining Girls. You want to tell us about that? Um, the Shining Girls has been optioned by Appian Way, which is Leonardo DiCaprio's company, and MRC, who made House of Cards, which uh, was directed by David Fincher and starred Kevin Spacey. And very interestingly, um, and I think this is what sold me on them, went straight to Netflix. And MRC has a very interesting funding model, uh, which isn't based on making a pilot. It's based on finding the right people and getting the right script. Um, and then if that works out, there are all systems go. And when I was looking at the different options, because we had four different companies pitching on the, on the, on the book, and some wanted to make a TV series and some wanted to make a movie, and it, it really came down to that, the fact that they were so forward-thinking, and that really feels like the future of television. You know, I was riding in the car with my four-year-old this morning, um, taking her to school, and one of the songs from Wreck-It Ralph came on the radio, and she demanded that I play it again. And I couldn't explain to her <laughs> that radio was not on demand. <laughs> And she has no concept of media, which is not on demand. And that's actually the way we're heading, you know, and, and to think otherwise is, is very foolish. And there's a reason Game of Thrones is the most pirated TV show on earth. And if HBO would just make it possible for people to buy it, I think it would change a lot. And, you know, it would change those, those statistics massively. There would still obviously be pirates, but I think people, there are a lot of people who want to pay for that kind of content who can't have any, you know, who just don't have any access to it. So I was excited about the, the you know, about them as prospective uh, as a prospective partner in that regard. Um, and also the fact that, you know, they sold me on the idea of a TV series to think of it as a 13 hour movie, which would really allow you to get very deeply into the characters because otherwise you run the risk of the girls really just being pretty corpses. You know, you would just get such a short snapshot of their lives in like two, two hours that they might be reduced to exactly what I was trying to avoid. Mm -hmm. So you're saying they're not going to do a pilot, they're going straight to series, and it's going to be on Netflix? or No, no, no. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying that's <laughs> okay. what they've done previously. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know exactly how it's going to work. The ink is barely dry on the paper. So they're going to try and attach a director and, you know, and then try and find a really great scriptwriter. But they don't, they don't spend money making a pilot. You know, I mean, HBO has, you know, everyone makes pilots for HBO. And then they see if they'll pick up the pilot and then you end up with crazy stuff like polar bears in an episode, which are never explained <laughs> and never make sense ever again. And you're kind of stuck with it. So they're, they're much more about running a really, really strong script, getting great talent attached, um, and then raising the money based on that rather than messing around trying to make a pilot, which you're then stuck with. But I might be misrepresenting their business model. That's my understanding of it. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you have a background in TV and film. Do you expect to be involved at all with the production? Um, I am on board as a consultant. Um, we'll see. You know, it really depends on the director and how much input they need. Um, I'd love, I'd love to be involved. I don't have any illusions that um, you know it's an adaptation. It's a completely different animal, and it also has to be. It becomes a collaborative vision. It's no longer mine, and and that's absolutely fine. All right. Well, speaking of TV, uh, I, th- I thought it was funny. You said that growing up that you weren't allowed to watch V, or it, w- it was difficult for you to watch the TV show V in South Africa. So during apartheid, there was a lot of censorship. And, you know, it's the one way that an evil, dictatorial, racist regime can maintain power is by keeping people in the dark as to what's actually going on. And they took it to crazy lengths. You know, like sometimes uh, defiant newspaper editors would put out a newspaper with a blank front page or a front page just covered with kind of black sensor bars to show how much they were being censored. And the kind of footage that the rest of the world saw, you know, on TV, on the news, um, we, we weren't exposed to. We weren't seeing the same kind of violence and, you know, the craziness in the townships and activists being killed. It was really super restricted. But this went to just ridiculous lengths. And the TV series V came on uh, late 80s, early 90s. And um, it's a miniseries, and the first episode aired, and I was really excited because it was science fiction, and there were aliens, and it was really cool. And next thing I know, it's been pushed to a really, really late time slot. You know, it was kind of Friday, 7 p.m., and suddenly it got moved to Wednesdays at 11.30, which meant because I was a school kid that I couldn't really stay up and watch it. And I, I asked my parents why, and they were like, well, you see, it's because they've got freedom fighters, and freedom fighters is a bad word that the government doesn't like. My, my parents were very liberal. I was very lucky to grow up with liberal parents who did not believe in the racist regime. But that, that was the explanation I got. And I only found out years later that the real reason I got pushed to such a late time slot where no one could see it was because the state president, whose nickname was the Big Crocodile, had freaked out completely, phoned the head of the SABC that night after the first episode had aired and demanded that it be taken off air immediately because the aliens were actually reptiles. And he was so vain that he thought this this TV show was actually about him. <laughs> and it was it was just, you know, I mean, it was a terrible, the whole apartheid regime was terrible, you know, and we're going to be tripping up over its legacy for years and years and years to come. There's no way, there's no easy fix to what happened in this country. And it was devastating and, and, and people were killed and there were, uh, you know, apartheid assassination squads and death camps and a chemical weapons program that was trying to make black people sterile. And it, I mean, it was horrific. But every dictatorship also has its just ridiculous eccentricities. And that was an example of one of them. Just this, this absolutely absurd moment in amongst all the craziness. So did, did that extend uh, outside of television to written science fiction as well? I mean, what, what has the written science fiction scene been like in South Africa for the past few decades? Well, interestingly, James Kutsia's Waiting for the Barbarians um, is about a kind of totalitarian regime. Um, and the futility of it and the absurdity of it. And it's very much a science fictional novel. It came out in the 80s. And the apartheid government absolutely missed the allegory there. They did, they banned other stupid things. Like they, they actually banned the book Black Beauty about the horse <laughs> because it had the words Black Beauty. And they were like, no, 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 we can't have black people thinking that way. That's just, you know, th- those two words in combination, that's terrible. And I read some Afrikaans literature at the time, which was very much allegorical about the, um, the revolution in Ireland, for example. And it was, you know, South African writers found ways of talking about apartheid without writing about it directly because that would get you banned or at worst exiled or, um, you know, a lot of people were put under house arrest. It was a really shocking time. 
so there was some very early science fiction which kind of was allegorical at the time and um then the apartheid ended and to generalize terribly you know everything everything was post-apartheid stories or i grew up under apartheid memoirs um and we were struggling to find our feet kind of as a literature i think and it's only been in the past maybe five to seven years that the scenes really opened up much more and that people are really open to publishers are open to fiction which strays from you know either apartheid memoirs or very straight contemporary fiction which addresses current issues of what it means to be South African and to just let people play. And the science fiction scene is really exploding now and that's really exciting. And I think it started with District 9 um, and then when Zoo City won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, I think it just showed people that it was possible to write that kind of story and that there was an audience for it. And it's, it, there's some very exciting stuff happening at the moment. I, I mentored a young writer, Charlie Human, whose book Apocalypse Now Now is coming out in July and it's just mental. It's just this crazy... <laughs> batshit amazing wonderful urban fantasy set in Cape Town um, with lots of magic but also some apartheid stuff and it's just absolutely fascinating Sarah Lotz is making huge waves she's got a major thriller coming out next year but she's been writing very interesting very nuanced horror um, as S.L. Gray together with Louis Greenberg looking at consumerism and hospitals and education but in a really fun, dark, creepy, creepy, creepy way <laughs> with this kind of alternate, you know, underworld. And are, I mean, are there science fiction conventions and magazines and workshops and stuff like that in South Africa? There are some small magazines. Um, so science Fiction South Africa. Uh, there's Something Wicked magazine. Jungle Gym is a wonderful pulp magazine. There's some interesting stuff happening online. Uh, Bloody Parchment writes, uh, puts together horror anthologies and has an annual competition. But it's all very small and very few people are actually making a real living out of it. It's certainly not the same status as it is in the States or even in the UK. Uh, I mean, you mentioned District 9, uh, Neil Blomkamp. What do you think about his upcoming movie, Elysium? I have avoided all the trailers okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I'm dying to see it. And I think it's going to be amazing. And I love the way that he brings his South African perspective um, to bear on big, bigger issues. It's very, very exciting. And he, sa he said that he's based it on, um, I think, uh, veterans from Angola. And, and also, you know, like it's, it's a divided society. You know, the rich live up in space. And it's just absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to see it. I've avoided the trailers because I don't want any spoilers. I want to go into it absolutely cold, not knowing anything about it. Um, and what I think is amazing about Neil Blomkamp and South African genre fiction in general is how he brings together to, you know, that he takes a major issue and by making it science fictional or putting this fantastic spin on it, it gives you a new way of seeing it and a new way of talking about it. You know, if District 9 had just been about refugees, it would have been Hotel Rwanda. And if it had just been about aliens, it would have been Battlefield Earth, uh, probably directed by Michael Bay. And the fact that he brought those two things together was what made it so exciting. And I think that's what a lot of genre fiction in South Africa is doing. It's just, just twisting reality slightly so that we can get a fresh perspective on it, especially tired issues like xenophobia or, you know, violence against women or stratified society and kind of neo-apartheid systems based on economics. I mean, have there been other uh, filmmakers uh, coming out of South Africa uh, sort of picking up the torch after Neil Blomkamp? They're trying. Um, I think it helps to have a personal relationship with Peter Jackson. Hmm. You know, because obviously, he, you know, Neil Blomkamp was very much his protege. And it's, it's very hard to get a movie made in this country, especially if you're talking about big special effects. Neil Blomkamp was an, I think he's an outlier. He was an amazing animator. 
doing incredible stuff. If you look at his original short, Alive in Joburg, it's just phenomenal. And, it, you know, all the, the, the foundation for District 9 was already there. And he probably could have made it by himself, actually, you know, using his animation skills. But the fact that he was able to tie in with Peter Jackson, the fact that the Halo movie fell through and that he was able to do his own project, um, I think, was actually the best thing that could have happened to him. I think it's also, it's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard thing to follow up on. You, you can't say, okay, I'm just going to do what Neil Blomkamp did. You have, to, you have to have all those factors. You know, it's, it's about hard work and determination, but so much of it is also about pure bloody luck. Well, and we mentioned that you, you yourself have a background in, in both animation and directing. Um, one thing I thought was interesting was that in uh, The Shining Girls, there's a character who's a transgender character who uh, hides the fact that she has a male body and, and uh, works as a, a sort of a burlesque dancer. And mm-hmm. so you did a documentary called Glitter Boys and Ganglands. And I was just wondering if that helped inspire that character at all. The documentary definitely helped inspire that character. Um, you know, spending time with um, with the girls really just gave gave me a real feel for what they go through, and you know the, the everyday issues that they have to tackle. And you know, the other interesting thing is I've always used my journalism and my other work to feed into my fiction. You know, with Zoo City, I used a lot of previous journalism that I'd done on four one nine scammers, for example, or rehab safaris where people come to South Africa for cheap rehab because it costs 25,000 rand in South Africa and it's $25,000 in the US. Um, and I just kind of f- threaded that through the narrative. You can actually draw a pretty direct line between The Shining Girls and my first book, which is a nonfiction, Maverick, Extraordinary Woman from South Africa's Past, which is all short chapters about extraordinary women who had to deal with hardship in their lives and fighting against their social context and were often dogged by terrible tragedy, but also fought through. And, and those were real historical women. So I think that, that set a precedent, and that was absolutely kind of partly where this book was coming from. I don't know if you ever played the Rifts pen and paper role-playing game. It's the science fiction game, but it just made me think of it because they have these characters named Glitter Boys. And they're... Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? I know. I never played it, but that's, that's cool. Oh, uh, yeah. So the Glitter Boys are these gigantic robot you know, power armor suits with sort of diamond armor that deflects laser beams. And they have these gigantic rail guns that are so powerful that when you shoot them, you have to have these pylons shoot 15 feet into the ground out of your boots to uh, brace you from the recoil. So That is amazing. I just thought since, awesome. since you like Glitter Boys, I thought maybe you would like to make a documentary about that maybe next. I, I would totally like to make a documentary about that. That sounds incredible. <laughs> um, have, you got a, have you got a mech suit? I'm, I'm, all about, I'm all about giant robots. Well, I'm sure John, my uh, co-host John Joseph Adams would want us to mention, speaking of uh, mech suits, his anthology Armored mm-hmm. that you contributed a story to. You want to uh, talk a little bit about that story? Yeah, you know, John asked me to write a story about it. And I, I played Mech Warrior when I was a kid. And, you know, I mean, Giant Robot's cool. And Robotech was like one of my formative influences, especially the way they just killed characters, you know, way before George R.R. Martin was doing it. You know, it was a kid's cartoon. They were killing characters. It was amazing. Yeah, so, so I was really excited to write, you know, a story about a power suit or a mecha. But I wanted to do a really dark twist on it. And um, it's actually... A company that comes from Moxieland, uh, Inatech Biologica, have established a uh, space operation that's specifically harvesting new forms of organic life to use as to synthesize as drugs or medication, which of course is something we're seeing happening in the real world now. And something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. Um, and there are dead soldiers who are being kept alive by this really creepy algae. And um, they're kind of 
half dead, half alive inside the suits. And it's one harvester's mission to try and confront what's going on and, and, and find out the truth, the terrible, terrible truth. Hmm. Uh, and then John, John was just telling me that you also have a story coming up in his Wastelands 2 anthology. Yeah, Chiselhurst Messiah. It was partly inspired by the London riots. You know, although I don't watch the news, I do keep abreast of it. And it was, um, it was very interesting actually being in London just after that happened because we'd seen so much hectic footage on TV. And the South African ambassador had actually issued a warning saying, advising South African citizens not to travel to London. So I'm in London and I'm kind of tiptoeing around and I'm texting my friends saying, where is it safe to go? And they're just laughing at me because the London riots were terrible, but they had also been blown out of proportion the same way South African crime always gets blown out of proportion. And it was really interesting to be on the other side of that, to be the scared tourist, um, as opposed to the local who's just like, oh, God, really? Really? Is it, you know, do you really feel that way? But yeah, Chiselhurst Messiah is about um, a rich man who's in, uh, who thinks he's the last human alive. And then he starts finding YouTube videos about the survivors. And he, he thinks that he must be the one to save them. He realizes he's the only one over 35 and then he must surely bring his wisdom to the people and help them and um, sets out to do exactly that. And of course, things devolve horribly from there. Hmm. All right, cool. So do you have any other uh, projects you want to mention? I mean, you have all sorts of stuff going on. It's almost too much to keep track of graphic novels <laughs> and screenplays and everything. Well, my graphic novel, Fairest, uh, The Hidden Kingdom, which is a spinoff of Fables, um, it's a J-horror Rapunzel. Well, it's coming out in July. I figured that Rapunzel is all about the hair and Japanese horror is all about the hair. And this can't be a coincidence. So I took Bill Willingham's characters from Fables and uh, he specifically asked me to pitch on Rapunzel and what, what I would do with her. And I took her to Japan and was able to really kind of explore all the Japanese fairy tales. And again, do a ton of research into how the Yakuza work and uh, the different kind of yakai. And, you know, I, I made my the artist that I was working with, Inaki Miranda, who's just phenomenal. But I made him watch like five videos on pachinko for w one page, just so that he could draw the pachinko parlor right and so that we could get the authenticity of it down. Because you know what? I read a comic a while ago, which is set, the characters fly to Cape Town. And if you do one Google image search on Cape Town, you will see an amazing, bright, beautiful, cosmopolitan city in front of Table Mountain. And the artist had drawn generic street scenes and an airport which looked like it was in rural Rwanda. You know, it was long grass and wildebeest. And I was like, no, seriously, please, please, we have a major international airport. We are a vibrant, amazing city. Please don't do this. So I think that's partly why I'm so obsessed with getting the detail right. I want locals to be able to read my work and say, yeah, she did a pretty good job. But yeah, and then and then my, my new project is Broken Monsters, which is set in Detroit. Uh, it's about weird bodies turning up in kind of abandoned places and a police detective who's trying to investigate it and her relationship with her daughter. And that's coming out next year. And you're also doing a screenplay adaptation of Zoo City, right? I am. Um, that's on hold at the moment because I have to finish the novel. Um, so, but it's been really fun to like revisit that universe and it really makes me feel like I would like to do a sequel at some point. Um, it's also been amazing to, because an adaptation is naturally a different animal. You know, it has to be because it has to be more visual. And to mess with the story a little bit to, you know, I mean, the core story has stayed the same, 
but to rearrange the scenes, to bring through the relationship between Zinzi and Benoit much more strongly so he's more present throughout, um, and figuring out how to represent the email scams was all really, really fun. And there's actually stuff that I've put into the screenplay that I kind of almost wish I could go back and put into the book. Um, so it's, it's worked out pretty well. Well, you know, it's it's a long, slow process developing <laughs> something for as a feature film. You know, it, it might take four to ten years. We'll see. Hopefully, hopefully four. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, ra- raising raising that pesky thirty million dollars. It's just such a you know such a pain in the ass. <laughs> Do you know anyone who has thirty million dollars? Please send them my way. Well, I'm sure one of our listeners probably has thirty million. dollars. Oh, absolutely, there. definitely. So, yeah, it's all take it's all taken care of. Now that you've been on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, all your problems <laughs> are over. Fantastic. Uh, all right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Lauren Bucus. Her new book is called The Shining Girls. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been awesome, Dave. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Lauren Bucus for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned for our panel today, we'll be discussing Psycho Killers. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Ross Lockhart. He's the author of the rock and roll novel Chick Bassist, and has edited dozens of books, including the anthologies The Book of Cthulhu and the upcoming Tales of Jack the Ripper. So Ross, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And so just a quick note, we're gonna, I want to define, first of all, what we mean by psycho killers, because you might say pretty much all killers are psycho, right? But for purposes of this discussion, a psycho killer can't be someone who's getting paid like a mercenary or a gangster or an assassin or something. They have to be in it for the love, and, uh, and they have to target or, you know, more or less ordinary people. And so these psycho killers that had the biggest impact on me when I was a kid, they were sort of in pop culture the most, were Freddy Krueger from the Nightmare on Elm Street movie series and Jason Voorhees from the Friday the 13th movie series. And they really had a big impact on me, even though I was way too scared to watch any of the movies. (laughs) And uh, I don't even know how I even really knew what Freddy Krueger even looked like. I think just people must have talked about him or I saw a poster or, you know, the box at the video store or something. But even that was enough to terrify me. And the house that I grew up in, we sort of had a finished basement and then you opened a door into the laundry room and you opened a door kind of into the cellar. And in my nightmares, I would be down there. And rather than just those three little rooms, it was this endless labyrinth of uh, <laughs> you know, caverns and Freddy Krueger would be chasing me through them. And um, so, you know, yeah, and that's even without having seen any of those movies. So I can only imagine what sort of nightmares I might have had if I had actually watched any of those movies. <laughs> but I mean, John, I know that you're impervious to fear, yes. so I won't even ask you about this. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, Ross, uh, did you ever have nightmares like that? Which uh, psycho killers sort of scared you the most or had the most impact on you when you were young? It wasn't the fictional ones that I found scary so much as the real ones. I did have a fascination with Hitchcock's Psycho, which led me back to Robert Block, and that whole idea that the killer could be the boy next door. I've long found appealing. But uh, coming of age in the 70s and 80s, it was uh, very much a serial killer culture at large. You had uh, Manson in prison constantly showing up on TV. Uh, and then larger-than-life characters like Richard Ramirez, who just recently died in prison, and uh, such that uh, were constantly on the news. Okay, so John, I guess I will ask you, did you, <laughs> do you have an answer to this question? 
Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, what I may be impervious to fear now, Dave, but when I was a kid, I I wasn't. I uh, I mean, I was I was much less rational back then. You know, I mean, I was I I was struggling with uh, religious beliefs and all that kind of stuff, and so I was much more prone to being terrified by such things. And uh, actually, the, I, I will say the one thing that has always scared me is was this notion that if you die in a dream, that you would die in real life. You know, uh, that thought sort of got into my head. And so, like, Freddy always did kind of scare me because because of that possibility. And uh, and although, like you, I, I didn't really... I can't say that I really watched these movies when I was a kid. I mean, maybe I saw... Maybe I saw, like, Nightmare on Elm Street when I was a teenager. And, uh, I mean, like, I, I basically know nothing about Friday the 13th. Or anything I do know about Friday the 13th is just because of pop culture. And also there was, a there was like, a Nintendo video game hmm. uh, based on Friday the 13th that I actually played quite a bit. Um, which was, uh, I remember being pretty good. But um, I basically know nothing about it um, except, like I said, from pop culture. But, uh, I mean, Ross, you mentioned watching Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. And I think you said that you just rewatched that, right? Did you, um, do you have any uh, impressions of it just from rewatching it so recently the performances are so understated and so much more realistic feeling than i think a lot of contemporary acting is uh hitchcock really had a a great way of coaxing naturalistic performances out of his uh actors even when they were um being a little more over the top you know you've got norman dressing up as his mother and such big spoiler <laughs> um but uh, it feels smart and it feels realistic. And uh, the big change from Block's novel to the film, uh, moving your POV character to uh, Marion Crane for the film uh, and following her for a good half hour, thinking that she's going to be the protagonist of this film when she is suddenly murdered in a shower, is one of the most mind-blowing moments in modern cinema. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just this this great fake-out of that she's stolen this large sum of money, and you assume that the violence in the movie is going to be people fighting over this money somehow, and then, nope, she just ran into this psycho guy, <laughs> and, you know, yeah. the money had nothing to do with it. I don't know if you guys saw uh, the, the recent movie Hitchcock, which is uh, a biopic about the making of Psycho. Actually, the thing about that movie that, that struck me the most is that uh, Hitchcock, at least as depicted in this movie, got so much pushback that nobody at the studio wanted him to make this mm. this movie that was just thought of as just being just grotesque and sick and tasteless. Mm -hmm. And and he was adamant. And I think he uh, took out a second mortgage on his house or something to help finance it when, when they wouldn't. Yeah, it's not surprising that he ran into a lot of pushback on making that movie. I mean, you think about like the time it was made. I mean, oh my God, like how, how revolutionary was that movie when it came out? I can't, I can't imagine that there was a lot that could have even possibly compared to it at the time. Like there was a remake of Psycho starring mm -hmm. Vince Vaughn, uh, I think back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And of course, just recently there's this um, Bates Motel TV series. Mm -hmm. Does anyone, uh, does anyone know anything about those? I haven't caught the TV series, but um, I did enjoy the um, the first Psycho sequel. Uh, there were, I think, three sequels, and uh, the uh, Psycho 2 was a lot of fun. Uh, the Gus Van Zandt shot-for-shot remake mm -hmm. is a really interesting piece of work, <laughs> but it is appreciable 
merely as pastiche. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really add anything to it. The performances, it's just other actors in the roles. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of uncomfortable <laughs> watching. I, I, I know it was critically slammed. Uh, but, uh, you know, for me, it's one of those films that it literally doesn't feel like it has any reason to exist. One of the uh, reviews I read of that, of the Gus Van Sant psycho, it's, it's one of the most memorable lines from a movie review that stuck <laughs> in my mind, but it says like, like Othello, Gus Van Sant loves psycho, not wisely, but well. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> I actually, I don't, I don't think I even knew that there was a psycho two or a psycho three. It, yeah. it seems to me that they missed a big opportunity there, there to have psycho, psycho er, and psycho est. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was the pre diehard days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, now, now they might also go with the psychos for the second one, you know, and then, uh, there would be two people. Yeah. Um, you know, possibly a team, like in Scream. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, I was, I, I was gonna mention Scream when you were talking about, um, the fake out scene at the beginning of Psycho, cause, uh, in Scream, they obviously, uh, riff on that directly right at the beginning. And, uh, I, I was just rewatching this in preparation for, for this panel. And, uh, my wife hadn't seen it before and, and neither had my sister-in-law, and so we were all watching it together and, you know, as far as they know, Drew Barrymore is one of the stars in the movie, you know, and it's like, so the scene open, you know, the first scene uh, has Drew Barrymore sort of having this encounter with the killer. And, and so, like, you suspect that, you know, oh, well, obviously she'll uh, she'll escape because this is like the first five minutes of the movie. And uh, so it was like it was really it seemed like it was really powerful to them that, uh, you know, that all of this happens just right. It's like in the prologue of the movie. It's like that. That's not even really the movie. It's like, you know, that's the, the, like that character. She's 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 dead by the end of the five minutes. And so it's like exactly like. uh you know, what, what Hitchcock did in Psycho. Um, and, uh, and that movie actually holds up really, really well, I think. A lot of these, uh, psycho killer type stories, there's a lot of contrivances that we just sort of, uh, allow, um, just so that we can tell the story. And it's like Scream has a lot of those, but it works really, really well as a horror movie that comments on horror movies and also has a good mystery to it, you know? And I think the, the killer in that is actually somebody, it's really interesting to watch because it's like, he, it kind of seems like maybe, maybe there's some sort of supernatural element to it, but you don't really know. Um, and it turns out that it's just completely, um, you know, it's completely realistic. It's just that, you know, there's two guys that are, uh, wearing this mask and killing people. And so that's why, uh, they're able to seem like maybe, uh, they're in, in more than one place at once or that they move pretty naturally fast or whatever like that. So, uh, I thought that was really interesting. Um, what, what do you guys think about? Scream? Well, yeah. And, and it, it breaks the, the convention that, you know, you think that if you've seen the, the masked attacker, mm-hmm. uh, and then you saw someone else, not the masked attacker in the same scene, that mm-hmm. that person couldn't be the masked attacker, you know, that mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you sort of, that's the assumption you have for any movie like that. And that totally, you know, uh, broke that whole thing by having, right. you know, the, the, the killing team. But like, like you say, it's like some of the plausibility issues. It's like, how long does it take to like dress up as that psycho killer <laughs> and like change out? Like, you know, it's like, it's like his Superman, like going into the telephone yeah. booth, you know, like, and especially like if you're going to kill someone, you don't need to wear a, you know, you don't need to dress up to hide your identity because presumably they'll be dead, you mm-hmm. know, after you finish killing them. But uh, I guess the, the killer in Scream, he tends to have pretty bad aim with his knife. So <laughs> yeah, true. It, is, it is good to have that disguise on in case you, you missed like 50 times with the knife and the person gets away. No, it also points to a sort of murder as fetish sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Murder is not going to be able to get his rocks off unless he's wearing his costume. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's sort of a Halloween thing, you know, the 
not not the holiday, but the movie, you know, the Michael Myers thing. It's it's sort of like uh, they obviously were super obsessed with horror movies. And that was part of the appeal of, of doing it at all was, you know, was was emulating their horror movie icons. Well, the masked psycho is such a great archetype. It's uh, it's a force. It's uh, to put it in the language of the movie Halloween. It's the shape that gets you. It's uh, not that it's a person. It is sort of a personification of death. And whether that is just the silently moving killer like Michael Myers in Halloween or the wisecracking killer like a Freddy Krueger, we do seem drawn to this sort of um, death personified as something a little more understandable. Mm-hmm. Actually, speaking of, of Freddy Krueger and his wisecracks, you know, in the interview, Lauren was talking about how Ed Brubaker told her that serial killers in real life tend to be fond of puns. And like I said, I never watched those movies enough to know. But does, does Freddy Krueger, I know he makes wisecracks. Does he make puns at all? Hmm. I don't remember. It's been years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I did want to, I thought it was interesting because Freddy Krueger, I think there's this interesting issue of does the killer have a motivation or not? And so we were saying like in Scream, they're sort of motivated to emulate. They've been, <laughs> their minds have been warped by watching too many horror movies. Um, in, uh, in Psycho, uh, it's uh, sort of psychosexual guilt or something that causes him to, to kill people. Freddy is trying to get back at the, you know, he's, he's taking his revenge on the kids whose parents uh, set him on fire, who murdered him, who set him on fire. Um, but then you have killers who just have no motivation at all, right? Like, um, like the Joker in uh, mm-hmm. Dark Knight Returns. Well, I guess he's technically he is getting money, so uh, maybe he's disqualified from this. But uh, he's certainly a good example of that. But also, I just watched this movie, The Strangers, and I wish they hadn't had this in the trailer, actually. But in the trailer, you know, it's it's these these three masked intruders uh, assault and torment these sort of this innocent couple, and at the end, the people say. Uh, Liv Tyler, one of the victims, says, why are you doing this? And one of the girls says, because you were home. And it's super creepy. And I, but they had that on the trailer. Yeah. I, wish, I wish they hadn't, because I think it would have been so much more interesting if you spent the whole movie wondering what the, mm. who these people were and what their motivation was. And then at the end, you find out, like, oh, they had no motivation. They were just, mm-hmm. totally, it was just totally arbitrary. Yeah, and actually, that's something they, they say in Scream, where they, you know, they, they're talking about how it's always scarier if, uh, if the killer has no motivation and, and that's how they sort of position everything. But then it actually does come out that in addition to the being warped by horror movies thing, you know, one of the killers, Billy, he also, uh, you know, uh, his girlfriend's mother had cheated on, um, cheated on her dad with, uh, with Billy's father. So, and then his mother left his father. And so he was blaming her for that. And, you know, he first killed, um, they first killed, uh, you know, his, his girlfriend, Sydney's mother. And, and so it all started with that. But, um, actually it was interesting what you were saying about, um, serial killers making puns because actually in Scream, they do do that. And I, that didn't even occur to me, but that's interesting if they actually did that on purpose as sort of, uh, something to sort of possibly tip people off that that guy is one of the killers. Uh, cause the, 
the so there's Billy and Stu are the two guys who collaborate to be the killers um in Scream and Stu actually makes uh, a couple different puns some like really really terrible puns that like are and they uh they actually you know really ham it up uh when they in those scenes and so um almost like as if to call attention to the fact that he's uh just such a dumbass you know uh but I, I just that that's interesting I didn't actually I didn't actually know that uh that these type of killers are, are prone to making puns. But um, if, if so, that's, that's an interesting detail. Yeah. I'm not sure I buy puns per se, but I, I do think that kind of our, our typical real world um, psycho killer, they do tend to be intelligent and articulate people. Ramirez aside. Um, but when you look at, Let's say the Jack the Ripper letters, um, for being things that used almost a, a drug-like sense of spelling. Uh, there is a, a weird sense of humor behind some of the things he wrote to the police, you know, providing, of course, Jack actually wrote those and they weren't a hoax. I think that might be selection bias though, because if someone's, you know, a, a psychopath and they're a total dumbass, then they kill mm-hmm. one person and they get caught, right? Like, in order to become a serial killer, you have to get away with killing a whole bunch of people. So, you know, only the more intelligent people probably have successful mm-hmm. serial killer careers, right? Oh, you know, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, because I wonder how many people are actually, like, sociopathic killers who who just happen to get caught after the first time. Um, another movie I want to talk about is, is The Shining, you know, uh, The Shining, Jack Torrance. You know, uh, Jack Nicholson plays Jack Torrance, who's a uh, an ordinary man who... Uh, takes his family to this hotel and then goes crazy and tries to kill them. And I think it's interesting because uh, I know Stephen King didn't like This is an adaptation of a Stephen King novel. And I know Stephen King didn't like it because in his novel, he wants you to really sympathize with uh, Jack Torrance and see how he goes crazy over the course of the book. Whereas when you cast Jack Nicholson in the role from the first scene, you're like, this guy is effing crazy, <laughs> you know? But, uh, you know, there was this documentary I just watched called Room 237. Where it's a, uh, it's they interview people about their theories about what The Shining means. I actually didn't particularly like the documentary because the p- theories are so insane. Hmm. But like, the one that sticks in my mind is one person thinks that Stanley Kubrick helped the government fake the moon landing video, and then he was so consumed with guilt that he confessed, and The Shining was his confession. So if you uh. You know, if you watch it carefully, you can see he's giving you all these hints that he was the one who faked the moon landing video. Okay, well, that that <laughs> that is pretty crazy. Yeah, and uh, just uh, for what it's worth, uh, the Stephen King actually has a sequel to The Shining coming out uh, this fall called Doctor Sleep. Do you know anything? I mean, because uh... it's about the boy uh, grown up. Yeah. Okay. And I guess there was another adapt. You know. There was a TV adaptation of The Shining that was supposed to be closer to the novel, but I don't think it was uh, very well received. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't well received at all. I did. I didn't see it, but um, I, I believe that yes, it is much closer to the novel. But yeah, nobody seemed to like it. All right. Well, uh, speaking of well received, what do you guys think actually were the best? Uh, what are your favorite serial killer stories? Uh you like novels, or you know, movies, books, anything. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna move into books. Um, Jim Thompson, the the killer inside me, is a personal favorite. It's a it's a noir classic with a narrator unlike any I've read since, you know, except for people trying to imitate Thompson. Uh, and really is a a wonderfully unnerving story. 
Uh, yeah, for me, I mean, it would have to be, I think, Silence of the Lambs. Um, you know, just, uh, and for me, it's the movie more than the book. I, I, I read the book later and, uh, uh, but the movie is always what stuck in my mind as, as being really great. Um, although I also do have a deep and abiding love for Dexter, uh, as, as <laughs> we've, uh, gone over, uh, in our previous episode, uh, where we talked about Dexter. But, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I love, I love the whole idea of Dexter and, uh, you know, a serial killer who hunts serial killers. I mean, obviously that's, uh, a little ridiculous on the surface, but, um, I just, I love the way it delves into the psychology of, of the killer and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, Actually, you know, I see on, on this list of stuff we have here, uh, you, you have Kiss the Girls there, um, which is a novel by James Patterson. And uh, I know that was one of the early things that I read uh, when I was first getting into this type of book. And like Kiss the Girls, I remembered like, I really, really enjoyed that at the time. Uh, I, I, I doubt I would enjoy it now, but I don't know. I don't know if it's more of a case of that my taste just matured or if uh, James Patterson actually got actively worse as a writer, because uh, I know I'd certainly, even back then when I was reading them, like, the book that he had come out after Kiss the Girls, I was like, I, I was already done with him at that point. So uh, yeah, well, you doesn't know, he have doesn't he have like fifty books come out <laughs> a week or yeah. something? Yeah, well now it now it's the James Patterson Fiction Factory. I don't think it was at the time, you know, but he a lot of time I guess he comes up with the plots of things because he's like he's good at plotting or he at least he thinks he's good at plotting and then he's just not good at the other stuff and so he just farms it out to other people. Um, I'm not sure if he always does that or if he just does that sometimes, but yeah, it's the James Patterson Fiction Factory. You can actually like there's articles about it. He talks about it openly. Okay, I actually have a funny Kiss the Girls story. Sure. So, um, my first couple weeks at college, uh, I asked out this girl, and I was still sort of getting to know the neighborhood, and so I got lost driving us to the movie theater. We are going to go see some romantic comedy, and uh, but I got on the highway going the wrong way, and it took me a while to realize it. So then I turned around, and you know, by the time we got to the movie theater, you know, it's like a small theater. This is up in Maine. And uh, the movie we had uh, intended to see, you know, it was already, you know, we had missed it. And the only movie that was still playing was Kiss the Girls. Mm. And I didn't know anything about it. And we're like, well, it's the only movie. Let's go see that. And this is not a good first date movie. This uh, <laughs> story about this guy who kidnaps women and like tortures them in his dungeon. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm just going to yeah. say that's not a... I, I, I can give that an anti-recommendation as a good first date movie. <laughs> right. So so what's your favorite uh, serial killer movie um, or whatever? Yeah, I haven't really read very many serial killer books. I was, mm -hmm. I was actually, I was going through all this stuff, you know, my list of books on Goodreads, you know, which is mostly fantasy and science fiction, and mm -hmm. surprisingly few of them actually involved serial killers. Um, actually, in, in the course of researching this, I looked at, a, I can't, I went and looked at a list which was the 45 best serial killer movies. Mm -hmm. And at the top of the list was seven, and I'm like, oh yeah, it's a great movie, and Silence of the Lambs, great movie, and Zodiac, fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, you know, the 40, uh, 42 below that. That's kind of like, oh, those suck, you know. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, certainly Seven, Silence of the Lambs, and Zodiac would be my favorites, mm -hmm. I think. Maybe, I mean, Psycho would be up there. Yeah, Zodiac's uh, a great movie. Yeah, uh, Zodiac, we should say, is actually, it's uh, it's based on a true story. It's right. not it's not fiction. There's a real Zodiac, a guy called the Zodiac Killer. In, and he was uh, never captured, right? I don't know. I'm pretty sure he was never captured, or at least it, if he ever was, it was like way, way, way later, like after he had sort of disappeared. Off yeah, the... well, I mean, the movie I remember is about the investigation. The investigation yeah. stretches on for like a decade or more. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure he was never captured, but it's possible that maybe some like 30 years later or something they did or something. I don't remember, but. Uh -huh. But the the thing about the, the the movie that's just so chilling is there's this scene where there's a, a boyfriend and girlfriend in a park in the city, you know, sitting beside a lake. And this guy comes up to them, who's the, who's the killer, and he shows them that he has a gun and has this really creepy conversation mm. with them. 
And and this really happened in this and the, he she shot both of them and thought that they were dead, but the girl I think actually survived. And so she told the police, you know, she re- recreated this whole conversation. And so in the movie, what you're hearing is what what the actual mm. conversation was from the serial killer before he, you know, killed these two people basically. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's really rare that anyone would tell would be able to tell you what a serial killer said to them before they yeah. died. You know, true, true, yeah. But I mean, yeah, I think that's one of the really fascinating things about serial killers and why we we find them so interesting to to write about and read about. That's the closest we can get, like in real life, to like an absolute monster. You know, all the different monsters we can imagine in fantasy and science fiction and horror. It's like, yeah, those are those are cool and those are great to read about and uh, and and they can be scary and 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 whatever. But the idea that a serial killer could be out there, it's like, you know, those are real things. That's the closest we really have to a monster in the world. And and the idea of actually hearing what this monster was saying to people like, I mean, that is pretty terrifying. You mentioned earlier a uh, a book by a lawyer about being a functioning uh, sociopath in society. And I've completely blanked on the name, but... Uh, Confessions a, of a Sociopath. Confessions of a Sociopath, which sounds just fascinating. It's a, a woman who is a lawyer who basically describes what it's like being a high-functioning sociopath in society. A sociopath's point of view. I'm I'm a little fascinated by this concept. But I also wonder about you know, perhaps that drive gives us our type A lawyers, politicians, those very driven people on one hand, and you know, people with somebody chained up in the basement on the other. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know much about the book. Uh, I just I read a little bit about it, but um, it does sound interesting. I mean, if it, you know, I, I would be very curious to check it out. But the the reason I encountered it actually was. Slate ran a review of it by Brady Snellis, you know, who's the author of American Psycho. But it wasn't just written by Brady Snellis. It was written by him as if his character from American Psycho, Patrick Bateman, wrote the review. So it was like a psychopath reviewing this book about the inner workings of a sociopath. So uh, it didn't necessarily make me think that, oh, this is like 100 uh, percent realistic and, uh, you know, accurate uh, portrayal of what it's like to be a sociopath based on. Uh, Brady Snell's review, but uh, I am still kind of interested in it. I'd be curious to see what uh, maybe uh, just like a professional uh, psychotherapist or something uh, would have to say about it, like if that seems uh, authentic and realistic. Because, uh, you know, the the person who wrote it actually wrote it under a, a pseudonym and stuff. And so, um, as you would imagine, <laughs> she probably <laughs> would since she wants to be a professional lawyer. Yeah, I mean, I haven't actually read the novel uh, American Psycho, but I think it's interesting because that was a satire you know mm-hmm. that uh i guess fred easton ellis his father is some sort of business guy and they had a very fraught relationship and he wanted to write this book to show that working on wall street and being a serial killer hmm. are completely complementary pursuits you know that there's no contradiction between the two mm-hmm. um and so the the character he's you know he kills people and he's really obsessed with <laughs> actually i'll talk about the movie which which i i really enjoy and the movie i think is very very plainly satirical um, but there's just like a, this great scene, for example, where uh, uh, Patrick Bateman, who's a, you know, he works uh, on Wall Street and he takes out his new business card that he's so proud of. <laughs> yeah. And everyone else and, and his uh, co-worker is like, oh, actually, I have my new business card, too. And they put down their business cards and he's like, I can't believe that his business card is better than mine. And all the business cards look almost exactly identical. <laughs> but the fact that, you know, this guy has some, you know, 
you know, the off-white collar of one is just so, so, like a little bit better than his makes him, uh, you know, want to kill this guy. Yeah, I think the line from the book on that is something like, there's even a watermark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that film really does capture the spirit of the book in a, a way that a lot of adaptations don't. And uh, the book itself is a great ride, and I, I do recommend it. Um, but the movie, it always kind of surprises me when I'm in a place like a Target or a Walmart or hmm. you know, some mass media store, and seeing that on the shelf and knowing that something that w- was really kind of a transgressive book when it came out has the idea has mainstreamed as much as it has. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point that, uh, there was just recently a parody with, um, Huey Lewis, uh, in it, recreating the Huey Lewis scene from the movie with, uh, Weird Al Yankovic. Well, do you want to maybe explain that, Russ? What is, what is the Huey Lewis scene in the, in the movie? The Huey Lewis scene, well, in, in the film, uh, Patrick Bateman, as prelude to killing somebody, puts on a, uh, you know, the, uh, Huey Lewis CD sports. Um, and, uh, explains how it is such a, the album itself is such a great metaphor for the 1980s and, uh, then proceeds to murder somebody with an axe. But, uh, the weirdness of that scene resonating to the point that a parody can so cut to the heart of it, uh, really does indicate that scene works on a a chilling level and yet it's about the superficiality of popular music Mm -hmm. but no you're you're right that when my understanding is that when american psycho the novel came out i mean a lot of people just really hated it and just really thought it was completely you know uh sick and tasteless uh i know uh gloria steinem who's a prominent feminist uh you know famously uh you know criticized it and then actually uh, uh, Christian Bale is her stepson, and so he, huh. then he played, you know, Patrick Bateman in the movie. So I've always imagined that made for some interesting Thanksgiving conversation <laughs> or something. Um, yeah. But then I thought it was interesting that they got a female director to to do yeah. the movie, um, right? Yeah, and I mean, female directors are so rare, actually. So the the fact that they actually got one to do something like this was was interesting. Uh, maybe it was sort of a way to. Uh, help <laughs> help mitigate the the damage uh, that such a potentially misogynistic uh, movie uh, uh, could do. Um, well, I guess uh, I guess that leads into one issue I wanted to talk about was that do movies glamorize serial killers? Uh, Lauren was talking about this a little bit in in the interview that you know I mean Hannibal Lecter and Patrick Bateman, like I, at one level they're uh, horrifying and in the, particularly in the case of Patrick Bateman kind of pathetic, but they're also, you know, handsome and, you know, well-spoken and wealthy. And, you know, I can see a lot of people uh, mm-hmm. being, you know, finding them appealing. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, with Patrick Bateman, not as much just because, like you say, he does ultimately feel pathetic. But uh, Hannibal Lecter, certainly. I mean, you know, he I mean, he's brilliant, uh, you know, and I think that's one of the things that really draws us to serial killers in general in, in fiction is that, you know, they're they're so ingenious. And they have to be to continue to get away with what they're doing. And I think we inherently find that sort of genius fascinating, whether it's evil or good. And the thing is, in order to catch the serial killer, our hero has to be fairly ingenious as well. 
at least most of the time. I mean, I guess sometimes it's sort of like, oh, they have a broken taillight sort of thing, and that's how they catch the serial killer, so it's like dumb luck or whatever. But, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I think that's a, a large part of it. And so, yeah, so we certainly, we, I mean, we, well, we almost have to glamorize them to make them a good villain. Um, and I, and I can certainly see though why people might find that troubling since it, it does, you know, that it's sort of a bad message to send. Well, we admire rule breakers. And who's more of a rule breaker than somebody that's going around killing people? Uh, there is that sort of fascination with both the sin and the sinner. We as a society, you know, we, we like to be regulated and protected and safe. And yet the idea of a wolf in the fold, uh, which uh, Jack the Ripper themed Star Trek episode title. So I've dropped that into the plate, but the idea of that wolf in the fold hunting us, uh, where we're supposed to be safe really does hit on a visceral level and it hits that fear center, but there's also this sort of, uh, weird attractiveness about it. It's, uh, could I be that person? Is there a sexual appeal to that person? Uh, power is an aphrodisiac and what is more powerful than being able to end other people? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. In addition to, I mean, you guys have mentioned power and, um, uh, intelligence and also I think just talent. I mean, people who are, you know, characters who are just the best at whatever it is that they do are really mm-hmm. appealing, like whether it's Sherlock Holmes or James Bond or whatever. Mm-hmm. But actually, John, when you said, you know, sometimes the serial killer gets caught not through any cleverness of the detectives, that just made me think of Seven, where the mm-hmm. killer, tur- you know, turns himself in toward the end of the movie. Right. And of course, that's all part of his diabolical scheme. But mm-hmm. uh, I, it just made me think, I do want to talk a little bit more about Seven because I think that mm-hmm. that's a, a, a fantastic movie. I guess if you haven't seen it, basically there's a killer and he's uh, killing people uh, each in a way. You know, he's targeting people who he thinks represent each of the seven cardinal sins and then killing them in a way that sort of punishes them for that. Okay, and so the, the detectives, there's Morgan Freeman, who's a very thoughtful senior detective who spends his time at the library. And then there's uh, Brad Pitt as his kind of headstrong, you know, flying off the handle new partner. And how they almost and there's there's actually and there's a funny line where oh and the the killer he uh, weaves sort of quotations uh, at the scenes of the crime, and Brad Pitt says, uh, yeah, just because this guy has a library card doesn't make him like Yoda or something. <laughs> and I've always thought that was one of the most perfect lines at showing you know just revealing character you know that this is Brad Pitt's uh, you know idea of a you know great thinker or whatever yeah. is Yoda. That's the, the only thing he can come up with. Um, but so yeah. when he said. Well, as you say, in the movie, you know, uh, Morgan Freeman goes and reads the books, whereas Brad Pitt goes and gets the cliff notes. <laughs> um, but so then what they do, that then that sort of gives Morgan Freeman the idea, if he could just see what books people are checking out of the library, you know, maybe he could uh, you know, do some data mining and identify the, the killer, uh, which is, of course, massively unconstitutional. And I saw this movie with my friend Pete, who grew up in the Soviet Union. And I was trying to explain to him, like, no, the government can't just go and look at what library books you're reading. That's totally unconstitutional. And uh, that's just sort of sadly ironic in retrospect that I used to think it would be totally, totally unimaginable for the government to be looking at what library books you're reading, mm-hmm. where now they're actually like listening in on your phone sex just because they're bored at the NSA, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Actually, you know, that brings something to mind that I wanted to talk about, which was sort of uh, how contrived a lot of these things are sometimes. Um, and that was a case where it's like, well, that was like a cool idea, but wouldn't this guy own those books? Really? Like he's going to check out 
you know, the Divine Comedy, don't you think that this guy who is so obsessed with the Seven Deadly Sins, who is, you know, pulling just the right quotation out to put on his murder victims, you know, wouldn't he own the copies of those books? Would he really be going to the library? And actually, I'm not, I'm not the, the hugest fan of Seven. Like, I think that that movie is made entirely by, or almost entirely by the ending, which sort of forgives a lot of its sins for me. What I like about Seven is that idea of murder as art. The various set pieces of the murders are all very um, artistically arranged. And uh, I think that that's one of the resonant things about that film. And that's one of the things that film does right uh, compared to there was a recent television series uh, that tried to do literature and art and a murder called, um, I think it was called The Following. And I think that's already come and gone. Mm -hmm. uh, but that tried to throw around the idea of a uh, Edgar Allan Poe-themed psycho killer cult that didn't resonate because, well, it appeared nobody had actually read anything by Poe. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas with Seven, at least the literary references work on a sort of uh, freshman year in college level. Hey, John, have you seen Manhunter? I have seen it. I, I haven't seen it since, uh, you know, I was like a, probably a teenager, though, so I don't really remember it very well. I, I, I think as a, you know, any discussion of the Hannibal Lecter character and uh, Hopkins owned the role for mm -hmm. so long, but uh, you know, really, you got to look at uh, Manhunter since it's the first cinematic mm -hmm. adaptation of uh, Red Dragon and Brian Cox's performance, you know, miles away from Hopkins. But, uh, it is just so chilling. And, uh, for a movie that's, you know, kind of stuck in the eighties in a lot of way, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, really does have some great performances and some great visuals mm -hmm. to it. Um, and I, I, you know, I think as a movie, you know, now that they've done Red Dragon mm -hmm. in the continuity, I think a lot of people forget about Manhunter, mm -hmm. but, uh, it's definitely one that uh, was a big influence on, uh, me mm -hmm. getting into this sort of, uh, you know, the, the killer cinema. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I remember not being particularly enthusiastic about Red Dragon, which was, you know, the, the more recent adaptation of, of Red Dragon and, uh, and also of Hannibal, both the book and the movie. Uh, I haven't actually seen the TV show Hannibal. Um, I don't know if either of you guys have, but, um, I've heard that's actually good, but, um, that's yet another person embodying the role of Hannibal Lecter now. So. Mm hmm. All right, well, I do want to talk about uh, Psycho Killer specifically in fantasy and science fiction. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously, Freddy and Jason are supernatural, and The Shining is a supernatural story. But uh, do you guys have examples of uh, of real, actual fantasy and science fiction stories featuring serial killers, etc.? I mean, the only examples really I was able to come up with are, you know, we have Siler from Hero, the TV show Heroes, uh, which is actually pretty cool because he's a serial killer and he kills people with superpowers and absorbs their superpowers. Like, that's a really cool idea. Um, there's the movie Cell with uh, Jennifer Lopez, where she's it's it's sort of a um, it's the same idea as Roger Zelazny's uh, He Who Shapes that was expanded into the novel The Dream Master, where it's a psychologist who's able to go into somebody's mind, you know, and there's sort of like weird surreal imagery to represent the the mindscape of of their uh, of their brain, you know, and uh, it's not a very good movie at all, but it has amazing visuals. Uh, it was Tarsem Singh's directorial debut. And I think it's worth watching for the visuals. All this story is kind of crap. Um, <laughs> the only other examples I have on here 
Oh, well, somebody, oh, well, there's, there's Dogface Joe from the Anubis Gates. That's one of my favorite characters. He's a little loose to call him a, like a psycho killer, but this is a guy and he's been infected with uh, lycanthropy, right? So he turns into a werewolf uh, and he has the ability to swap bodies with people. Um, but the, uh, the werewolf infection always follows him wherever he goes. So he'll swap into some new body and then start growing hair and fangs and stuff and become more and more of a monster. And so then everyone's trying to kill him. So then he'll swap bodies with people. So what he'll do is he'll uh, swap bodies. He'll, he'll sort of chew up his tongue so that the person can't talk. And then he'll swap bodies with an un, uninfected person. And then the person finds himself in the body of this monster unable to talk. And then they get killed. Uh, speaking of uh, swapping bodies, there's also the movie Fallen, which we talked about in our Demon episode. Uh, but that's that's about a psycho killer who swaps bodies with people. Um, and... Uh, and uh, and that and I mean that's one of my favorite examples. Um, and then I was just somebody on uh, Twitter mentioned the Corinthian from Sandman, uh, from you know from Neil Gaiman's graphic novel series Sandman. Uh, and this is I actually just went back and reread this, and it's absolutely fantastic. This is in the second Sandman graphic novel, The Doll's House, I think it's called. And there, there's actually a serial killer convention at a hotel, mm-hmm. and they've booked the whole, whole hotel, so everyone at the whole you know all the. Uh, guests are all serial killers and they show up for this convention of course they don't advertise it as, as, a, series, as a serial c- killer convention and it's all private uh, but it's funny and you can tell that it's really funny if you go to science fiction conventions and you can tell Neil Gaiman's obviously been to lots of science fiction conventions because the just the dialogue and stuff is so spot on and so there will be a panel like uh, women and serial killing and the women on the panel are like I hate it how we're always stereotyped as either a black widow or a killer nurse you know <laughs> and uh, and the and so the Corinthian is this um, he's sort of the supernatural killer and he always dresses all in white and he has sunglasses and uh, toward the end of the arc you see what something creepy happens when he takes his sunglasses off one of the things that sticks with me uh from that uh story arc was uh that in dancing around calling them serial killers uh gaiman terms them as uh collectors Mm -hmm. and that has, has just stuck in my head as uh one of the the most interesting ways of putting it, uh, the idea of like any collector out there, these are just people who are well, collecting a different sort of memorabilia than we are. Uh, yes. Yeah, so for me, um, you know, the I mentioned Fallen. Uh, one other example that comes to mind is uh, in my Sherlock Holmes anthology. There's a there's a story by Tim Levin called The Horror of the Many Faces. Um, and that's, mm, yeah. in, in that one, uh, Sherlock Holmes is pitted against this killer, you know, that has many faces. Um, and so it's like, uh, you know, that's, that's a supernatural killer there. And, uh, I mean, that's a really great story and, and, uh, quite dark. I published a couple, or I published one in, uh, Nightmare, an original called On Murder Island by Matt Williamson. Um, that one, you know, so you can go read that for free online. But, uh, that one, it's like, it, that's a great story. It's very strange. Like originally, um, it was submitted to me at either Fantasy or Lightspeed. And, uh, um, I didn't feel like I could take it because there, there's not really a supernatural element. I mean, it's definitely weird. It's probably, some sort of genre story, just that it was really hard to contextualize it as that. But then once I did Nightmare, I was like, well, it's obviously horror of some kind. And so I felt like it was okay to run there. But it's like, it's basically like, uh, it's almost like Lord of the Flies or like the most dangerous game or something. It's just like, but then like the island they're on, it's just filled with serial killers, you know, or just other psycho killer type people. And it, it's, 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 it's a really strange story, but really, really cool. Um, and, uh, I also, I also had a story called The Taste of Starlight by John R. Fultz that was in Lightspeed, um, back in 2010. And actually it was so, 
it was so horrifying that it, I mean, it was science fiction, but it was so horrifying that I actually did a whole horror issue based around it because I was like, I can't just publish this on Lightspeed without like some context because it was like, it was so dark that, um, I, I didn't feel like it would just fly with my, uh, with my science fiction readers without a little context. And so, um, that one's about a guy who's on this, uh, starship that's on its way to this distant location. And, uh, he wakes up from cryo sleep and he's going to die because he doesn't have enough provisions to get him there. And so, you know, he becomes a, like a cannibal. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll say that for, I mean, that's, that's a little spoilerish, but I mean, it's, uh, you can still really enjoy the descent into madness, uh, even if you know that. And I also recently reprinted a story called God of the Razor by Joe R. Lansdale, and that one's in Nightmare, uh, so you can go read that one as line as well, online as well. But that one was also in Ross's Jack the Ripper anthology, so uh, uh, go ahead and you talk about that if you want, and whatever uh, other Jack the Ripper stuff you got there. Um, well, I can talk about the anthology in general, but uh, you know, God of the Razor is just a great story in general. And uh, when I started putting together this anthology, I wanted to do all originals, but I needed a couple of uh, reprints to kind of act as cornerstones and set a definition for you know, where Jack the Ripper fiction has come from. Um, and uh, one that I knew I wanted to reprint, and it was uh, Jack's Little Friend by Ramsey Campbell. And when I started talking to Joe Lansdale about it, he suggested a couple of different things. And in looking at him, God of the Razor really just drew me in. And it's just so madcap and so fun and yet so chilling. I'm glad to see it on uh, Nightmare as well as having it in my book. Uh, but for the most part, the stories in Tales of Jack the Ripper are new stories. It's uh, a collection of uh, 17 stories and two poems. And all but three of the stories are brand new. I put the uh, the anthology together to mark that this year is the 125th anniversary of the Whitechapel killings. 25 years ago, uh, 1988, we had a few Jack the Ripper anthologies come out that were really good. But I wanted... Uh, to see how how much things had changed in the last 25 years. And I think the authors that I've brought to this project really do capture that by looking both backward and forward at the same time. So I've got people like um, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia in it, uh, Ennis Drake, who's up for um, the uh, Shirley Jackson Award for uh, Best Novella this year, has a short story in it. Walter Grateshell, who's always a blast to work with and, and just really a fun writer. Uh, T.E. Growl, Oren Gray, Ed Kurtz, who's uh, kind of a noir writer, um, Pete Rollick, uh, who is a Lovecraftian writer, uh, Stanley Sargent, speaking of Lovecraftians, uh, hasn't published any short fiction in a good 20 years, and this is uh, one of the first new pieces he's done. Uh, so this, I'm really glad to have him in the book. I've got Laird Barron in the book. So really a killer collection of authors <laughs> no pun intended telling, well of course puns are intended uh but tell well, because you're a serial about, killer <laughs> now i have to kill you guys <laughs> um <laughs> anyway a killer collection of authors telling stories about really the rock star of serial killers and uh i think people are going to be uh are going to have a lot of fun with this book so are, are the stories all science fiction and fantasy or are any of them just like straight um, sort of historical sort of mysteries type things? It's a mix. Mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm a big fan of supernatural fiction. Mm 
And uh, so my aesthetic tends to bring in things like that. But there are a couple of these that exist purely in the mundane world and are more crime stories than mm-hmm. they are uh, fantastic stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, my main qualifier for this was not, you know, is it fantastic? Is it sense of wonder? But is it a good story? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was really happy with what came in. See, and, and Ross, this is the first book from your new imprint, uh, Word Horde, right? Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Well, I started Word Horde earlier this year, and it's kind of a reaction to some of the, the, the meltdowns in publishing that have been going on over the last few years. My intention with Word Horde is to be a very upfront, communicative press to work with authors, to pay a fair wage to authors. Uh, I paid pro rates for all the stories and tales of Jack the Ripper. And to be a little more immune from the sort of uh, meltdowns that we've seen lately, um, I'm using the infrastructure that's been set up for a lot of self-publishing. I'm, I'm going through a company called Lightning Source to do printing, and uh, I'm going through Amazon directly for the ebook versions of it. But because print-on-demand technology has gotten to the point where it looks as good as a perfect-bound paperback from any manufacturer, it's the right time to do it. And that way, I'm not going to be drowning in returns like uh, so many small presses tend to. All right, cool. I guess uh, another topic I wanted to bring up is just are serial killers overdone as a topic? I, I mean, when, uh, you know, John got me to watch Dexter a couple of years ago and I told him, no, like, I'm sorry, serial killers are just on my list along with cops, doctors <laughs> and lawyers of, uh, you know, professions I don't watch TV shows about because I'm just bored of it. And, uh, but, but then he sort of talked me into watching Dexter and I ended up loving it. But it does seem that serial killers are really overdone. I mean, uh, if, if you saw the movie adaptation, there's this really funny scene where, um, the, the main character, Charlie, is a, a screenwriter, and he has this sort of doofus brother who's, you know, been inspired by Charlie to work on a screenplay. And Donald is the doofus brother, and he's, his, his, his idea for a screenplay is, uh, you know, it's like a serial killer with multiple personality disorder where he's the, he's the killer, the detective, and the girl. And, <laughs> and you know, and, and Charlie's just like, this is the stupidest, most cliche idea you could possibly imagine. And then, of course, he gets bought by Hollywood. <laughs> but... um I guess, but I mean, like, like John, I was saying that actually serial killers aren't that common, at least in the fantasy and science fiction mm-hmm. books that I've read. And it doesn't seem like you've published a ton of serial killer stories in Nightmare. Even you right. know, like you're editing a horror magazine, and, mm-hmm. and yet there's not that many serial killer stories that you were able to come up with. Are you getting lots of serial killer stories, and you just don't like them that much, or are people not writing them as much, or what's going on with that? Uh, well, I can't say that I've seen a lot submitted to me. Um, you know, I, obviously, I, I have a team of slush readers that go through the slush. So I don't, I don't know how often they come up in the sort of lower echelons of the slush, and in, in, in the sense that you know, just poorly written serial killer stories. I don't know how many of those are coming in, but um, yeah, I mean, I haven't really gotten a whole lot of stuff like that submitted to me um, at Nightmare. But uh, and I mean, it's possible that I'm, I'm, I might be missing something that I, I, I didn't think of that was about a killer, but I don't think so. Although I, I will say that a lot of um, I haven't encountered a lot of supernatural or science fictional type of serial killer stories at all. And, you know, and so uh, and the thing is, like, even though I am open to straight, uh, straight, realistic stories in Nightmare, as long as they're horrific, uh, even though I am open to that, uh, I think a lot of writers still haven't quite 
got caught onto that, and and so they still always uh, just submit supernatural horror or science fictional horror that kind of thing, rather than you know the the sort of just straight horrific realistic stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, so I don't I don't really know, but um, I mean it, it could also be that it's partially like serial killer stories tend to work better in the long form. I mean just because I know um, mystery stories in general typically work better in the long form. Um, it's, it's a, it's harder to, uh, to drop in all of the red herrings and that kind of thing that you need, um, you know, you need all these, uh, diversions that the detective or whoever can go down before he catches the killer. And so it's, it's hard to do that in a short story. I tend to wonder anytime that we start talking about whether a, uh, a movement in uh, literature in film in whatever, uh, when we start talking about it as cliche, it seems invariable that someone will shortly after you've decided it is cliche and everything's been done with this subgenre, somebody will put out something that does something new with it. And we see this happen with zombies all the time. And I, I think with serial killers, you know, you get to the, the very simplistic TV series sort of treatment of it, which is generally kind of dumbed down. But you also get a lot of very smart treatments of it that are done in novels and uh, do keep us coming back for more. Um, yeah, I will say one one example uh, on television that we haven't talked about. Uh, there's a show, Criminal Minds. Um, that one's very, very contrived, and it's uh, very plot-driven as opposed to character-driven. So it's not necessarily, it's not typically my sort of thing, but... The writer Elizabeth Barrett kept talking about how great it was, and and so I decided to check it out because like when it first came on, I was like, ah, I've seen that show a hundred times. I don't need to see that, and uh, so I didn't watch it. But then uh, she was talking about how great it was, and so I checked it out, and and I did get into it. Um, and and eventually I lost interest because it just got to be too repetitive. But one of the reasons it's so contrived though is just that it's like the behavioral science unit at the FBI, and so and like they study serial killers. But then it's, then it's like, as you were saying, Dave, it's like I mean. Both in science fiction and fantasy and in real life, serial killers are not actually that common. So, you know, so like I said, it's very contrived because of that. But there are a lot of cool um, serial killers in the in the course of the show. Like not everyone's like, like super interesting or original, but they did have a bunch of different ones that were, uh, you know, that felt like, you know, oh, OK, well, that was a cool idea. Um, and actually, one of the nice things about the show is that they they do pay a lot of uh, homage to uh, books like. Every episode actually begins with a quote, and they've even quoted some science fiction writers on it. It's very strange. Uh, so, so obviously, someone on the staff is a fan, but yeah, I mean that's I mean so that's another serial killer show if you're interested. Uh, I, I didn't particularly care for the following, which was the other recent one that Ross mentioned, but um, you know, and like I and like he said, I think it's already gone anyway now. So well, John, I mean, when you mentioned the the behavioral science unit, whatever mm-hmm. it is, I mean, well, I think first of all, serial killer stories lend themselves to storytelling really well because there's like the stake that you have to do something or, you know, mm-hmm. or else the another like victims are keep going to keep turning up until you catch the person. And so anytime the story starts to drag, you can, Oh, well they just found another body and mm-hmm. you know, here's some more clues. But I think that the ability of that we have to profile people is wildly exaggerated in movies. And the best illustration of this, I think was that, uh, I don't know if you guys remember years ago, there was the DC sniper. Mm-hmm. Um, where somebody was shooting people with a sniper rifle at gas stations in Washington, D.C. And like all the profilers were all on the news saying like, oh, this is almost certainly a white male age 25 to 35, like whatever. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be like this black uh, veteran and this like black teenage kid. And they were driving around in a car 
And it was like totally, you know, like, um, okay, that's not what you would, you know, that's not what people uh, were predicting at all. Mm -hmm. But what was really striking was that, um, you know, and there were reports like a white van was spotted at the scene. And so everyone was like keeping an eye out for a white van. And of course, I'm up in in New York, so I, I don't expect, but just like, since that's on my mind, I'm paying attention to like, do I see a white van? And there's a white, I'll tell you, there is a white, if you drive around, I'd never noticed this before, but there is a white van in your field of view at any time Mm -hmm. if you're driving around (laughs) on the street, you know, like there's a lot of white vans out there. So, uh, uh, that was, so yeah, it it just really gave me the impression that the, uh, the profiling stuff is really exaggerated. And especially I think because there's this tendency to say that white killers are serial killers and non-white killers are, it's like gang violence or or something else, uh, that that also skews the statistics. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think you're definitely, there's definitely something dubious about behavioral science, uh, you know, profiling and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, it is really interesting. Um, and I mean, it could, it could just be that, uh, not all profilers are actually good at what they do. And it's just a really hard thing to do. I, I mean, I don't really, I don't really understand the science of it well enough, but I do find it interesting. And, and so actually, uh, so getting back to Sansa Lambs for a minute, um, you know, Scott Glenn's character in the movie, you know, Jack Crawford, uh, the guy who, who hires or brings, uh, Clarice Starling on board to go interview Hannibal Lecter, um, he's actually based on this guy, John Douglas, who's like the real, the, the guy who really pioneered behavioral science and profiling. And so he actually wrote a book called Mindhunter, um, that's, you know, sort of the first person account of a profiler, how, how it works about some of his cases, about the things, the people that he's profiled and all that kind of stuff. And, and I thought that was interesting, but uh, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, if it's, if that's something that you're actually interested in reading more about um, there is that whole book about the guy who basically pioneered the field. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I guess that just leads into the whole issue is of, is there some way, is there like characteristic behavior or something of serial killers that would allow you to identify them just from uh, looking at them or something? And this is sort of a personal interest to me because people mm-hmm. often say that I seem like a serial killer just because I'm like quiet and not super animated and stuff. I'm trying to work on that for all you people who complained about that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, because I'm just sort of quiet and stuff. And my dad's sort of the same way. And his, um, it was funny because uh, the um, woman that he went to senior prom with when he was in high school ended up becoming a mystery novelist. And her first novel is about a woman who goes back to her high school reunion and some and people are turning up dead. And like my dad read half the book, he's like, oh, I know how this is going to end. It's like hmm. the guy she went to the prom with is going to turn out to be the killer. And he was right. And uh, so there's just, I, I don't know, I just want to speak out against this uh, <laughs> stereotyping of quiet, uh, you know, calm people. Because, uh, you know, I would be the worst serial killer ever. Like if I were Dexter... I would like be dumping the body parts off the boat and I'd be like, ah, oh, shit, I left the head back in that room. <laughs> and, like, and I think I left my wallet there too. Um, and also like, I can't stand to even watch uh, like surgery performed like on mm-hmm. ER and stuff like that. So <laughs> I'd be really bad at stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it is an interesting question though, just because uh, yeah, we do like to think that we can identify these types of individuals and, and I'm not sure how well we can. I mean, you know, I, I think the, the best that we can hope to do is, for instance, if that book, Confessions of a Sociopath, if that if that's legit, like, I mean, if you can read something like that and actually understand how the sociopath's brain behaves, like, you can sort of probably start to pick up on some certain types of behavior and just like in the things people say, it's like, it seems like you'd be able to notice that. Like, I mean, a lot of times you like you get this weird vibe about a person like that and you just know that you don't want to spend any more time with them. Like, you know, what? what 
even if it's not really like so much as what they say, but there's something about them, you know, like something about the way they said stuff or, or, or something about like the look in their eye or something like, you know? Well, like I want to give a counter example though, but, um, you might, and this is like really disturbing. So if you ever want to sleep again, you might want to stop <laughs> listening now. But you know, when there was, there was just the case of the three brothers who had kept those women, you know, prisoner in their basement and, uh, somebody had called the police at one point and said they had seen a naked woman with a leash on crawling around in the backyard. And the police kind of came and knocked on the door and they're like, ah, nothing here and, and didn't investigate any further. And people were like, how the hell could you not investigate more mm-hmm. in that situation? And someone posted and said, well, if you think that's bad, what do you think about this case? And actually, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, you know, before he got caught, had kidnapped this teenage boy and drugged him. And somehow the boy was able to get out of the house and he was wandering naked down the street. And these women came across him and said, you know, who are you? Are you all right? And they called the police. And so the police show up. And then Dahmer comes out and says, oh, this is my boyfriend. And we just had got drunk and had a fight. Like, let me take him home. I'll let him sleep it off. And he talked the police into letting, and the women are like, are you crazy? And the police are like, nah, nah, it's best not to get involved in this kind of thing. Like, and they, and they sent him off. And then Dahmer killed and ate this boy later oh. that later that evening. And so, like, I mean, it seems like these police officers were just kind of oblivious, but Obviously, it makes you wonder, like, Dahmer must have seemed pretty normal and uh, clean-cut and well-spoken and stuff. If he just seemed like a crazy serial killer, Mm -hmm. if it was the kind of thing you could just look at someone and tell, you would think the police would have been more suspicious, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, like, what you were saying earlier, or what we were saying earlier about, you know, how how only the really skilled uh, serial killers actually become serial killers because they get away with it a couple times, you know? Uh, I, I think that, yeah, it, it, it becomes much more uh, unlikely that such a person would be would give off any actual sign that, you know, there's something wrong with them. They they have to learn how to, like, uh, like in Dexter, they talk about this all the time. It's like, it's like learning how to blend into society because you're this alien creature living amongst uh, normal people. The Dahmer story, I I seem to recall that uh, that recurs in uh, Poppy Bright's novel, Exquisite Corpse, and uh, she elaborates on it to some degree. Uh, I mean, Dahmer was a a big part of the uh, inspiration behind that novel, and uh, as far as dark literary rides go, I, I, I do recommend that one. All right, cool. I guess just the last thing I have here to talk about is... Uh... There, there, are, there are movies about psycho killers where you get the feeling that the writer is just expressing their frustration. They're like, oh, if only I could just take a gun and shoot these people that are annoying me. And that's sort of the basis of the movie. So like following, the movie Falling Down with Michael Douglas, where there's just like an ordinary guy and he just one day he just snaps and just goes around with a gun. Uh, the part that sticks in my mind is he sort of walks onto a golf course and points his gun at the, uh, the rich people playing golf and says, this should be a park. Kids should be running around on this grass which I totally agree with, by the way. But, uh, and then there was just this, I didn't see it, but there's just this recent movie written by the comedian Bobcat Goldwaite called God Bless America, where it's basically the same idea. There's like a guy and he just snaps and goes around with a gun <laughs> shooting people he doesn't like. And this sort of has a teenage girl as his accomplice. And like the first person he kills, at least the, the part that's shown in the trailer is there's a girl on a reality TV show and her parents buy her a sports car for her 16th birthday, but it's the wrong kind of car. And she's like, dad, what the, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know? And so he goes and, like, kills her, you know. And so at some level, this movie is meant to, you know, the the serial killer is the hero of the story, you know, or the psycho killer is the hero of the story. And I'm just wondering uh, what your guys' uh, impression of those kinds of stories are. 
Well, they definitely fulfill a need in society. We want to punish the wicked, and uh, we define the wicked. It's one of those traits that shows up a lot in horror movies. You know, who, who is that clever, wise-cracking serial killer from beyond the grave stalking? Well, it's it's the people who are out smoking dope and having sex and uh, you know complaining on Twitter that they got the wrong color phone. So it is. It is punitive, and it is cathartic. Uh, so perhaps that is why we are drawn to it. All right, I guess, Ross, you mentioned your uh, Jack the Ripper book. Do you have any other... Uh, what else is uh, coming up in the future from Word Horde? Well, uh, Tales of Jack the Ripper will be our first release, and uh, depending on how well it goes, I'll be figuring out what I'm doing next. But uh, I am planning to to be around and uh, putting out cool anthologies and uh, cool new stories uh, for as long as I can. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, Ross, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you. And thanks again to Lauren Bucus for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Click Clack Gorilla, who writes, My favorite podcast. A friend who knew I like Philip Pullman and Ursula Le Guin tipped me off to its existence, and I've been obsessed ever since. Working my way through the entire catalog obsessed. Listens to episodes multiple times smitten. I wish David and John would come over to my house and talk to me about sci-fi over breakfast outside of my computer. Five stars, ten cartwheels, one hundred high fives. Just listen to it, you won't regret it. So thank you, Click Clack Gorilla. I gather from your blog that you live in Germany, so coming over to your house for breakfast might be a bit tough to arrange. But if you're ever in New York, you should definitely check out our Geeks Guide NYC Twitter feed to learn how you can meet up with me and other listeners. Also, just want to let you guys know that in July, I'll be teaching for two weeks at the Alpha Young Writers Workshop in Pittsburgh, so our next show might be delayed a week or two. Watch our website and Facebook page for further updates. And speaking of July, on July 28th, John and I will be taking part in SofaCon, a live online event hosted by Tony C. Smith of the Starship Sofa podcast. We'll be taking on John DiNardo and J.P. France of the SF Signal podcast in a no-holds-barred geek trivia smackdown. For more information, visit sofacon.org. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.